You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lily Wright is the author of the travel memoir, Learning to Float. Her new book is a novel, Dancing with Tigers. Thank you for joining me, Lily. The looter dug into the cave with the fervent touch of a lover. Cranked on meth, he shuddered as he dug, cursing a lilting lullaby to women and smack. His body smelled. He noticed and then dismissed it, the way he noticed and dismissed the wet in the air, his cut knuckles, the dust and sweat that covered his skin like fur. Lesser men would have whimpered about their knees, their aching backs, little pussies, but tweaked he could work for hours without losing his cool, or quitting from hunger, or succumbing to the roar of Aztec ghosts. Everything that mattered in life was buried, covered up, lost, afraid to show its true face. Few people had the courage or imagination to dig. Christopher Maddox was far from home, an American in Mexico, a college dropout kneeling in the dirt, a holy man, you could find religion anywhere. Two days before his trowel had hit the leading edge of an urn or crown, a relic worth enough cash, he hoped, to float him all the way to Guatemala, where drugs were cheaper than mangoes, where women greeted you with warm tortillas and a goat. Guatemala, all those soft syllables adding up to nothing but a hammock and a song. The looter that's what he called himself, alter ego, doppelganger, shadow in the moonlight, the hero of a story that began when a humble man from Divide, Colorado, dug up a treasure that saved his life. The headlamp slipped. He righted it. Sweat froze in electric beads, a crown circling his forehead. A lot could go wrong underground. Apocalypse, asphyxiation, popocatapetl, the cave that caves in, any minute, pinche federales could pounce. He picked up his wasted toothbrush and scrubbed, watched stones reveal themselves like a stripper. Sex humped his brain. He dug past time, and he dug past death. His skin itched from nerves, the tickle of bugs, the spook of the dark, the thrill of the find. A shadow caught his eye. Against the cave wall, a figure, a vision. His mother's weathered face flickered across the fissured rocks. Her spotted hand reached for him, trying to yank him back from the abyss. The looter's chest cracked with this new agony. He grabbed his pick, stabbed the ground, not caring what he broke. He just wanted his due. Now, ahora, damelo. An angel sighed. The devil bit his lip. The relic fell loose. Five hundred years of Aztec history tumbled into his busted hands. The looter rolled on his heels, giddy, cooing, sweet baby Jesus, because he was no longer in the cave alone. A face stared up at him, a turquoise mask with only one eye. Lily Wright is the author of the travel memoir, Learning to Float. Her new book is a novel, Dancing with the Tiger. Thank you for joining me, Lily. Thanks for having me. At the center of this book is a character, Anna. Tell us about creating Anna and... Her life has some parallels with yours. Of course, there's a, quite a bit of invention going on there. But talk about your time in Mexico and how that inspired this book. 
Well, this book actually dates back to Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places. I was a reporter um, for the Salt Lake Tribune, and um, I'm sort of a restless person in general, and I'd been there about three years. And I took a night class um, because I decided to learn Spanish. And I had this professor named John Bohorek, who the book is dedicated to. And he was this really lively, elfin sort of character with a big mustache and a bald head. And he taught us grammar, and he taught us vocabulary in Spanish. But in between, he would regale us with stories about Mexico. I'd never been to Mexico at the time. And he said the fruiter was sweeter in Mexico, and the women were more beautiful, and the people were so gentle, and we all had to go to Mexico. And he led these trips, continuing education trips, for students. And he wanted us to come with him because he needed a certain number to be able to go himself. And... He described these nights where he would lie in the hammock with his feet in the sand and a very strong drink and read Pablo Neruda poems and look up at the stars. And I thought, okay, I'll go. So I uh, took a month off from the Salt Lake Tribune and went down and stayed and lived with a Mexican family and had a wonderful time. And there was a, um, one day at a street fair, there was this table and this woman was selling folk art coconut masks. And I was really captivated they're painted on the back shells of, of coconuts, and um, they have these sort of wonderful expressions. So I bought about five or six of those and brought them back with me. And as soon as I got back to the newsroom, the first thing I wanted to do was go back to Mexico. So I applied for a grant, um, an Inter-American Press Association grant, and went to, Me- to Mexico for nine months to study Spanish and do some reporting. And um, originally, I went to Guadalajara and studied there, but I didn't love that city as much as I thought I would. It was very crowded, and I used to ride the bus, and the men on the bus, you'd be crowded in there, and they'd be staring at your breasts, and then you'd go by the cathedral, and they'd all cross themselves. (laughs) These are details I, I put in the book. But uh, one weekend I went to San Miguel de Allende, which is a beautiful sort of expat artist colony, really, which is on the UNESCO Historical Places Registry. It's just gorgeous. And I went there and I was like, this is where I belong. It was beautiful. And I had a great year there and I had all sorts of adventures. Now, you had mentioned uh, that you picked up some coconut masks and masks, of course, uh, figure greatly in this novel. Mm -hmm. Had you ever collected masks or been interested in them before or any of their symbolic significance? Before then, no, although my grandmother had this very, had this mask, Mexican mask, she liked Mexico too, on her wall. So I used to look at it a lot when I was a kid. And then, of course, I loved Halloween. Everybody does, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember, this is a very old memory of once as a child, dressing up and being so young as to think that we could dress up and convince people we were boys. We spent hours preparing this this get-up And I remember thinking how liberating that would be if we could just be boys. (laughs) But most of my mask experiences really came later. I ended up going back to Mexico to Oaxaca for a year and then started visiting mask makers and seeing mask dances and becoming interested with that. Your character in this book, Anna, also collects masks. And and you mentioned the mask dances. Uh, Did you take part in any of those? Oh, no, no. They're they're, um, very local. I wouldn't be, as a tourist, I wouldn't be invited to go. But I have gone to them. Mm-hmm. There are some of them, well, in the state of Oaxaca, they're very remote. You have to 
Well, fly down to the coast, the ones that I went to, to fly down to the coast to uh, Pinotepo Nacional and then take a bus and then go way, way into the countryside to these small towns. And they're like town festivals, basically, all-day affairs. And often it's just the men in the town that do the dancing. But some of them, it's it's all ages. Some of them are very ritualized. And um, there are old steps and music, and it can be very scary. It it's both um, a celebration, but there's also a lot of drinking. And so things can turn ugly quickly. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, you, something could happen here, and no one would know who did it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really like the, the character of Anna, and I think this novel is an interesting novel because uh, it uses a very uh, easy-to-grok trope. It's a treasure hunt. Mm-hmm. Yes, Maltese Falcon. Yes, everyone's looking for this treasure, but they're all looking for it for very different reasons. And I, so explain what the treasure is. Is it real? And, and kind of the the background of that whole thing, because that's a really interesting historical note in this book. Right. So it's um, supposed to be the death mask of Montezuma, and not really much is known about how he died in disgrace. I mean, he was basically, his body was dumped on the side of the road. So it's unclear whether he was properly buried. I mean, back then, usually they burned um, someone's remains and then buried them, often with treasures or a mask to um, smooth their way into the afterlife. And they might even kill their dog and bury them with the dog for protection, or they would put jewels with people um, so that they have money to pay their passage. Um, so it's unclear what happened to Montezuma um, at his death. So I just made that up. That is the fiction part. Is there such a mask? We don't know. Would a mask like that have been made in advance? We don't know. No one thought he was going to die. It's unclear how he died. There's conflicting stories. You know, did the Spanish, he was apparently up on this balcony, and the Spanish version is that his own people stoned him to death because they were so disgusted with his acquiescence to Cortez. Um, that's not what the indigenous people say. So it's unclear how he died. So it's ripe for a, for a fictional account. Wow, that's already really <laughs> interesting. I can see why you did that. Now, uh, one of the things I like about this book is you have, uh, we get to meet at the beginning a bunch of really interesting and varied characters who apparently have nothing to do with one another, and you, they're slowly drawn together. Um, when you created these characters, did you know who they were going to be in advance, or did you just kind of start spinning a little scenarios and then letting them weave their own way together or more organically? That's pretty much it. My, I had never written fiction before, so I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, and I wrote a draft in three months, and it was just basically the story of Anna, and I wanted to have a tiger. And... and I've been a reporter and a nonfiction, a memoirist, so the whole idea of plot and how to create an elegant plot was something I had to sort of study and think about, and most of it was trial and error, which is why it took five years to sort of figure all that out, how to... um, I took some screenwriting classes, actually, with Robert McKee. I went to a screenwriting workshop in New York City to sort of understand how to put those things together. So the plot comes from character, I knew I wanted Anna. Anna is a little bit of me. They always talk about in fiction writing that a fictional character is usually one-third you, one-third people that you know or have met, and one-third imagination. And I think that that 
mathematical percentage, even though we're talking art is about true. I'd say she's about one third me and two thirds definitely not me. But <laughs> um, yes, I mean, a lot of the things that she sees or feels are things that I've seen and felt. But her situation, of course, is a lot more dire. And yes, I, tr- I love stories where you start off and you meet all these people and you can't imagine how in the world they're going to intersect or why they're ev- even in the same book together. And then slowly they're paths converge in interesting ways. So the three characters, one you just heard at the beginning was this looter, this meth-addicted looter. The second is this woman, Anna, whose father is an art collector who's been disgraced because he's published the first major book on masks. And it turns out that some of the masks in the book are fake. That And also her romantic relationship is falling apart. So she's a mess. She's in New York City. And then the third character is a Mexican gardener who's married, but is in love with a teenage girl who works at the papeleria, the paper shop. So you have a looter, Anna in New York, and a Mexican gardener in Oaxaca. And it starts out, and they seem to have nothing in common, but in the end they do. One of the things I liked in this book a lot was this notion of masks and duality. I mean, if there's something really at the core of this novel, it's this idea of duality, that we can be one thing and another at the same time. And I think this goes to the idea of wearing a mask and taking it off and being one thing. You're you're put on the mask. You're apparently the uh, dying Montezuma, or your heart take it off, and you're a meth addicted looter <laughs> in a garbage dump in Mexico City. Uh, so, talk about did you discover the themes of this book as you went, or did you know where you wanted to go? And what does duality mean to you? Well, I think I discovered it and I knew what I wanted both. I mean, I discovered it. I had a basic idea, but then it it got more nuanced and layered, I hope, and complex as I went along. But Mm -hmm. the very first sentence I wrote was, um, let me see if I can find it. I've worn a mask most of my life. Most people do. As a girl, I covered my face with my hands, figuring if I couldn't see my father, he couldn't see me. Um, I've always been sort of um, amazed how... When something's wrong, if you have a bad day or something terrible is happening in your life, how you're supposed to get up and put your get yourself together and go off to work. And a lot of times you go through the whole day and people have no idea what's going on. We put these these masks on every day, right, to to get by. And in one way, I feel like that's an act of courage. And in another way, I feel like it really in, impedes, um, inhibits um, intimacy or connection with other people. So I was interested in that. The book has masks that are real and then masks that are more metaphoric. Um, also, I teach essay writing. I'm a college professor, and I teach English at DePaul University in Indiana. And um, there's a famous quote um, from Montaigne when talking about essay writing, we must remove the mask. And I think about that a lot about what it means to really be close to somebody and to say exactly who you are and how difficult that is. And a lot of these characters have secrets that they're ashamed about that they don't discuss. And so that's an ongoing theme in the book. And then masks are just fun, too. I mean, they're beautiful and they're whimsical. I have a small mask collection in my living room. I have a big tiger mask and a cow mask. 
And yet there also, I find, there's something just intrinsically disconcerting about a person who's alive and moving, but the face has a single expression, whatever is on the mask. And, um, and then, of course, there's all the violence that's done with masks on, right, to cover ones, um, you know, from ISIS to, you know, a bank robber, right? We cover our faces so no one can see who we are. So I'm just interested in all those issues. And I started out with that idea, and then it ended up playing and changing and, and throughout the book and popping up in interesting ways. You mentioned that you were a reporter. Your first book was a memoir. Did you have issues uh, writing, doing, a, creating a piece of writing that was essentially fiction, all lies? <laughs> Lots of lies, and everyone's lying. Um, it's a yes. book also about lies too. It is. It is. It is. Um, right. I had no idea if I could do it. I, I, um, I got the idea because I wrote a second first-person piece. It was sort of a quiet memoir about the death of my mother and the birth of my son and how somebody who's not religious weathers these sorts of difficulties. I had um, a hard time having conceiving my, my second child. And I couldn't sell that book. And then I would go to Barnes & Noble and look at all these books and just get mad. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write something totally different. I'm going to write some kind of adventure story. And what do I know? I know Mexico. That's what I'm going to do. But I really had no idea if I could do it. I'd never made anything up. I was a reporter. I was paid not to make anything up. It was a little bit of the same thing when I did memoir, because that was a leap too. A reporter doesn't use the word I, and mm. all of a sudden, memoir, it's all I. So it was yet another leap further afield from where I started. <laughs> um. Early on in the book, uh, Anna's uh, thinking about her relationship, which is not good. And she says, uh, she was with David, monogamous, a virtue that sounded like a disease, and <laughs> which is a great line. But it's also interesting because I think now more and more we have, and actually we have always had an inclination to uh, commingle uh, virtue and disease in the, so that people who are sick are seen as their their illness is often seen as a result of uh, some lack of virtue. Oh, you drive yourself too hard. Oh, you don't take care of yourself. You don't eat right. And so I think that's an interesting perception kind of at the core of uh, Anna just in terms of her own virtue, which is... Uh, Negotiable, <laughs> I think. Maybe that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, she's just getting by. And, uh, yeah, she has a past, which we won't go into, perhaps, mm -hmm. right? And she's trying to be good and has relapses, shall we say. Yes. There's Yeah, I mean, the story has several characters who have addiction problems. I do think, you know, mental illness or substance abuse, all those things are diseases that we're just beginning to acknowledge not as moral shortcomings but as medical issues the uh first person we meet in the in the novel uh, chris maddox he's a a, a meth addicted twigger a twigger yes. so explain what a twigger is right i'm glad you brought that up because um many of the crazy sounding things in this novel 
are true, are true phenomena, are true repertorial things. So this is a real thing I heard about when I was hiking once in Utah, and my, the guy that was guiding us told me a story about in the Southwest, there are people who are addicted to meth who are going through Indian uh, burial sites and digging up pots and urns and relics and selling them for a quick fix. And it turns out, he said, that meth addicts, I have no experience personally with the drug, or do, but apparently one of the side effects of being on meth is a certain intensity so they'll do things like take a television apart and then put it together. They like to be doing something. So they make beautiful diggers because they don't need to eat. They don't need to drink. They'll go down there, and they need money, and they need it fast. They're highly motivated. So this was a real thing. And I was like, that is unbelievable. And so they're, But they're, they're rough. They're careless with these things, and they, they do break things. They're not careful diggers all the time. Well, obviously, if they break it, they can't sell it. Um, so that was a true story. I just moved it south of the border, which isn't much of a stretch because this was happening in the southwest anyway. Now, uh, when we talk about Mexico, you can't talk about it very long without talking about the ill-advised drug war. It uh, hasn't worked out so well for anybody. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you to talk about researching that and bringing threads of that into the narrative, um, both with our Twigger and with some of the other characters. I think that uh, it's an interesting problem, and it's interesting to uh, examine those characters. Right. I think that the the most recent total is 160,000 people have died in the war against drugs in Mexico. And um, you can't really write about the country without writing about that. Of course, Mexico is many things. It's not just a caricature of that I did want to try, there is a, um, the novel has many points of view and chapters written from different points of view, and there is um, a few from a drug lord. And what, I, I did research on that and tried to find a voice for that drug lord, and I wanted to humanize him. I guess this is interesting, too, since we've all been reading about El Chapo recently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're cruel, cruel, violent people in Mexico running these gangs. But I do believe fundamentally that we're all born into the world, good people, kind, innocent people. And so something happens, right? Something along the way happens to people to make them um, resort to that kind of violence. And so I was interested. It's not a huge part of the story, but I felt I wanted to explore it at least briefly about that. So the drug lord has a cameo where he um, speaks to a video camera, almost really a confession, and um, talks about how he became who he is. Well, I think, too, it's always interesting that the the more villainous any human being is, especially in reality, uh, the more virtuous they see themselves to be, <laughs> that the... the, the most horrific killers and always think they're just doing everybody a big old favor. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's complicated, right? Mm -hmm. But um, back to the truth. Um, There's one scene, I won't without giving too much away, where 
Uh, the looter digs a tunnel. And at one point I thought, well, is this realistic? <laughs> and then, you know, El Chapo came out, right? Right? <laughs> a mile-long tunnel <laughs> with with railroad tracks and a motorcycle underground. I mean, it's just crazy, right? It's crazy the things that, that happen. Um, one of the things I like about this is throughout the novel, um, the characters, in particular Hugo, mm-hmm. uh, it, is they're seeing things that um, are based on their, I guess, un- their religious understanding and beliefs of the world so that they will see things that maybe most of us won't or they'll see patterns. You know, one person, I might look at a, up at a cloud and see a rocket ship and somebody else might see, you know, a saint or a demon or something else, mm-hmm. depending on what you're what you bring to the party, so to speak. Um, So talk about creating, like, different um, character-based versions of uh, magic realism or, you know, visionary writing from different perspectives. Right. Well, in a weird way, this kind of stems from the book that I couldn't get published where I was a rather bereft period of my life, and I'm not religious, but I found myself seeking some sort of spirituality. And we were living in Spain for a while. Um, we get these wonderful sabbaticals. And I would go inside churches and just sort of sit there waiting for something. And so a lot of the characters in the book, for various reasons, are struggling with their faith. Where is God? Why isn't God care for me? Um, at one point, there's a line, um, a desperate person will pray to a rock. you know I've done that (laughs) you know I spent a lot of time throwing pennies into fountains and making wishes and I'm just really interested in the line between religion and spirituality and superstition and what we all turn to to try to get by I always knew I wanted you borrow little things from writers you admire and one, we had this amazing poet, Morris Manning, who wrote these book of poems. They were really sort of beautiful prayers to boss, like, hey, boss. And I knew I was such, I love that book. And I thought, I want to do something like that, just a little, just a touch. So I have one character who speaks in prayers, her own version of that. And then I knew that at one point I wanted the um, Santa Muerte, which is the angel of death, to speak. But at the beginning, I had no idea. What, what in the world would that voice sound like, the angel of death? So it was like the last thing I wrote. And then I thought, well, I'm officially no longer a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> at one point, one of the characters is thinking about, you know, this difference, too, between facts and fiction— it's easy to get them mixed up. It's easy to make a mistake to read someone else's fiction, present it as a fact, and relay it as a fact, and then all of a sudden you are a fiction writer. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a very interesting mix of kind of guilt and, and uh, uh, regret. Uh, regret is a major part of Anna's character. I, I like that. I, I don't think we, I think we spend a lot more time in the world of regret than we'd like to admit. Is that a personal statement? <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't know I about you. <laughs> no. 
Yes, right. We try to live without regrets, but um, hard to do. Let me think. Yes, she does. I mean, there's a big, I can't wait to talk without giving too much away. But she has her demons that are haunting her, certainly throughout the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's also a a really wonderful scene where one of the characters starts to realize that or or believe that he's seen all these signs and he starts Mm -hmm. listing them out, kind of one through eight. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was a really interesting perception of kind of uh, what I call omens, the way that we all um, have our own kind of systems of of how we read the world around us. Uh, Omens, what I would call omenology, just like looking at the world and saying, okay, because I hit this traffic jam here or because I got this great sandwich here or something good or bad is going to happen. Oh, my God. I do that all the time. I do that all the time. It's so – that's something about human nature, no? I mean – Okay, this is my example of this. I think about this all the time when I'm watching televised sports. That feeling like the minute I got up, they started to lose, right? Or, you know, they were doing really well. I can't look because if I look, then they'll go. These sort of bargains that we make with ourselves mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. Um, that, once again, when I was trying to get pregnant, all these sorts of mind games and um, promises and um I think it's because we can't control things, so we try to control them by making bargains. With whom? I don't even know who I'm bargaining with, right? Is there God? I don't know, right? If I do, if I'm a better person, if I try harder, will I get what I want? I don't know. You know, um, I'm interested in all that. I, I think you do a great job, too, in this book of describing the relationship between uh, Mexico and America in a way— Americans perceive Mexico the way, and, and I think it's really changed, I think, maybe in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, at one point, you, uh, one of your characters talks about, you know, going to Mexico, it's a place where you can really relax and unwind and where people don't do things, and, you know, everything's kind of like it. Um, there's much less uh, fraught lifestyle. And I think that's changed recently, and I'm wondering if you talk about that. If it ha- has it changed, and um, has it changed for the people who live there, and is it, or is it just a, a change that we feel from our, our uh, point of view as Americans? I haven't been to an expat community and lived there for a long time, so I can't really answer that question. I do. I am very interested in the relationship between Americans and Mexicans, and. I, I've been an expat in Mexico to, on two extended periods of time, and, and it's it's a hard relationship to get right, I think, because there is such pleasure in sharing cultures and sharing language. At one time, my Spanish was very good. It's since deteriorated because I went to Italy, so now it's a big muck. It <laughs> ruined my Spanish, and I was a French major in college, and now I have this big bucket of languages. But... At some time, my Spanish was really good, and there was really nothing that made me happier than speaking Spanish with people in Mexico, and I always prided myself on being able to make people laugh, like if I got in a cab, that I could have, even if I only had a certain number of words, that I could make a joke or that we could connect despite our differences in backgrounds and languages. I love that. I really is one of the things that brings me a great amount of joy. But at the same time, 
the socioeconomic differences, the resentment I think that Mexicans feel. I can only imagine. I haven't been there. Well, I went to Mexico briefly, but it doesn't really count. We were sort of in a touristy, I mean, we were in Cancun, which is a different situation. But I can only imagine the resentment that they must feel about the way, for instance, Trump is talking about them and their country. So there's a resentment there, too. Our wealth, our power, our arrogance, all those things, it makes it hard to connect um, across cultures. Mexico is so beautiful, and this whole idea that all Mexicans want to come to the U.S. is so false, because the people that I always talk to, they wanted to come to the U.S. only because they weren't worried about their families and they needed money. If they could go back, they would. That's where they're, they're very family-oriented culture. They want, they want to be with their kids. They want to be with their grandparents. They want to be in their Pueblo. They have their traditions. They're not dying to go be to go, you know, live in Chicago. That's not, <laughs> that's not the impression. <laughs> that, I mean, of course, you can't say monolithically anything about any culture. But um, So I think it's always been a difficult... And the expats that go down there, some of them are very spoiled. I mean, you can't... Again, there's all types, right? But some mm. of them are just go down there and then complain. I think there's a paragraph. There is a paragraph about that in the book, right? Oh, and to complain about all the ways that Mexico isn't like the U.S. I was like, well, they wanted you to go back, you know? <laughs> they want their cat, their you know, their beauty. They want the strong dollar. They want the cheap Mexican help. But they also want everything to function just as beautifully as it did in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> there are a number of uh, scenes where she has to get herself just a little bit drunk so she can do something really bad. Yes. <laughs> and I think that was an interesting choice on your part to yes. put that into your main character. Yes, and her father is has is has a drinking problem, and I think she's sort of hovering. She's hovering, uh, which adds a certain tension to the story, I think, not knowing if, she, if her problem is serious or not. But I do think alcohol can embolden one to do things for good and for bad, right? That... Mm-hmm that uh, we wouldn't do otherwise. Maybe I should have had a drink before I came here, right? I would give a better interview. But... No, I think you're doing much as <laughs> I'm sure we've, well, I won't say everyone. I'll say I have certainly done that, right, To If it's an awkward social situation mm-hmm. that one one has a drink, and she's certainly putting herself on the edge. But then at the last, it's, at a certain moment, too, she realizes she needs absolutely every bit of wit she can muster, and then, she, you know. I think the most applicable quote is, bad day to stop sniffing glue. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe uh, our audience is too young to remember such a thing. <laughs> right, right, right. I think abstinence is a, is a virtue, or virtue better started tomorrow. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's about right, right, right. right, too. Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned is uh, the city that a lot of us is in, in Oaxaca, is that what you're saying? Oaxaca. Oaxaca. Okay, mm-hmm. Oaxaca. Uh-huh. Uh, that's... Uh, a small town. Uh, it's a big town, but it's a small town. I think mm-hmm. that's an interesting perception mm-hmm. that um, most Westerners would never be able to make because you'd kind of just look at it and say, it's complete chaos. How could anybody wrap their brains around anything in this in this mm. city? Mm. Well, we lived in Oaxaca for a year, so the, in the art world, yeah, that would, there, there is a small town. You go to the part, it's a, you know, art openings, it's the same kind of groups of people. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I don't know, is this a small town? I mean, I feel like there's always sort of subsets within there, and certainly with the expatriate community, everybody knows everybody because you seek out people like yourself when you're in. Once again, going back to that idea about the expat community, 
you think you're there to mix with people, but then there's something you crave that sort of reassurance and the relaxation of, oh, my God, I can speak English and be myself and express myself. And so the expats in any city in Mexico or anywhere in the world, they tend to glom together. Sometimes it's too much and you get sick of that, but it, you end up trying to recreate the world that you've left behind with these other people in this cool place, right? And hopefully you have Mexican friends too or whatever. It's this nice balance. But the characters, the expats, at least some of them in this book, are very insular and um, a little wacky, which is... <laughs> Yeah, Mex Americans go to Mexico to lose their minds, right? It's a line that repeats several times. I think that's true. There's a certain freedom to do as you please because there's nobody watching from home anyway, right? <laughs> right, they're all too far away. Right, you can recreate yourself. Well, uh, that's um, certainly a, a theme of this book in terms of also in terms of just the way the masks work. I mean... All you have to do to recreate yourself is put on a mask. And I, I love what happens to Hugo when he uh, puts on these masks. And so talk about this idea of dancing with masks a little bit more. I'd never heard about that. Right. Well, it's interesting. Um, one of the characters well, in the book is a mask collector. And um, I visited several mask collectors in Mexico and um, a mask is not considered considered authentic unless it's been danced. And I, as soon as I heard that fact, I fell in love with it. Um, basically, in other words, that the mask carver has made this mask to be worn in an authentic folk dance in the street. And so, therefore, when you turn the mask over on the side that's against your face, there's this rich patina. Actually, the wood will be sort of lacquered from sweat and dirt that the dancer this is freaking hot right these dances go on for hours and you're in the beating sun so the inside of the mask will be smooth and worn and will show wear from the dancer so that would be an authentic mask that was danced in a specific dance in a specific place so that mask is more valuable than say a mask that was made tourist decorative mask that's just sold, you know, on the main drag. So a real collector will want to collect old, beautiful, authentic masks. And this is the trap that Anna's father falls into, that he's people are selling him masks that are not old or dated. Um, but I just love that notion that, that a dance could make something more valuable. It's sort of a beautiful idea. Well, it fits in with the kind of uh, magic realism or um, psychological externalization of the of, of that theme that runs through the book where people kind of will manifest things outside of themselves, see things outside of themselves that reflect things within themselves. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I, that interested me, you used a word that I've often been accused of this, is collector. <laughs> Do you collect? <laughs> Not I. I used to be more of a book collector. Now I have to be a. Since they fired them at me with a cannon, I have to like try to get, you know, rid of them. And I'm accused of being a hoarder, but really I'm not. Really. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have a hoarding background. I am very interested in the relationship between people and things. I could talk about a half an hour about that. Yes, collecting. Right. Mm -hmm. When is it? A wonderful thing, right? That you can give to a museum, or that you can share, or that you're preserving these 
these objects, right? And when does it become obsession? And who decides whether the thing that you're collecting is worth collecting, right? I mean, my grandfather, who I love to death, he was kind of a hoarder, but he'd like collect power surge pluggers. What are those? I mean, he wouldn't collect them like he thought they were great, but he'd, you know, buy them, you know, buy 12 of them, right? Power strips. Power strips. That's the word. Thank you. <laughs> right? He had a saying, um, if you like something, buy two. <laughs> that and never throw anything away. Those were his mottos. Um, so, yeah, I'm very interested in collecting, and there's a lot here about characters collecting, and and when we put things before people and um yeah but a good thing is very reliable it brings great comfort some mm -hmm. objects do I, I think about that a lot and try to reconcile whether that means i'm materialistic or whether sentimental sent oh yeah well right and so i have a hard time throwing things away for instance that my mother gave me mm -hmm. whether i want them or not i'm like well my mother gave this is all i have i don't have my mother but i have this shirt I'm never going to wear this shirt, but if I throw it away, I'll forget that my mother gave me this shirt. So I've taken to taking photographs of the things and then trying to throw them out. But I'm not very good at throwing things out. A lot of this book involves art, archaeology, and the art world and the world of art forgery. There's a lot of crime goes on there, and uh, when your character's uh, the father's a, a victim of this, and this must have did you research this, or had you actually written about it or experienced it? No, I hadn't. Um, I read about it. I read um, Chasing Aphrodite and other books about both smuggling mm -hmm. and um, cultural repatriation, and um, just the I, this wonderful book um, by Craig Childs, Finders Keepers. He's an interesting fellow. I talked to him, actually, about his book, Did Apocalypse Planet. Okay. I haven't read that. Oh, it's good. Is it good? Yeah. I love the book. I mean, I love this idea that there's no really right answer to, which is always makes a good question, right? But mm -hmm. when should we dig up everything? When mm -hmm. do we stop digging things up? Should some things be left unseen, right? I love that idea that there's still things underground or that things are, might be safer underground. Um well, they might be revealed by technology. I mean, right now we look at the way some of the pyramids, original pyramids were excavated, you know, with pickaxes and things and think, mm -hmm. oh, my God, why did they do that? You know, we have if they just waited 100 years. They could have used, you know, surgical tools and um, 100 years. Hence, the people of that time may think, why did those stupid 21st century people actually dig stuff up when now we can just get complete images of wherever it is and uh understand it without even ever touching it right right and then it's in its place and it's in its context where sure. it is in place not been shipped off to some museum all the way across the world and put in a box on a wall right and then you see people destroying right and you know destroying beautiful objects and art and just the elements as well right the sun the wind pollution all these things destroying um artistic artifacts so and then there's museums they can't there's not enough room there's not enough room to put all this stuff back to hoarding. But, I mean, the hoarding beautiful things. But still, should you dig it up if you have no place to show it or you can't care for it? And um... Well, the other moral um, quandary that you bring in here is, like, as one of your characters put it, should all Greek artifacts be exhibited only in Greece? I mean, that's a, that's a real question, and we're coming up against that more and more these days where 
um, different collection, different countries that were long ago looted, essentially looted by the UK or the US or uh, whatever other country are saying, you know, that's a that thing you have sitting in your museum is part of our culture. Yes, right. Like the headdress of Montezuma is in Austria, uh-huh. and they can't move it because it's it's beautiful. I mean, I've never seen it in person, but I've seen photographs of it. It's just this green, shimmery, incredible thing. They can't move it. It's never been in Mexico because it's too fragile. So there it is. But on the other hand, does does every country only have its own pieces of art? Or um, there was a museum in um, Mexico, I think, um, and the art collector, I forget now, this very rich man started it, <laughs> and he purposely brought all these Impressionists' artwork because he knew that so many Mexican people would never be able to afford to go to Europe to see them. Themselves, oh, right? it was somebody rich. Yeah, the Sommelier, the yeah. named it after his wife, right? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. He's. A, I was. That, he was an interesting character. I. I, I had to yes. look him up and see. Yeah, he is real. Yes, he is real. Yes, right. So I don't know what the right answer. Objects are complicated. What to keep? What to throw? Whose they are? Who they belong to? Um. I, one of the things I thought, too, uh, going back to the, you know, thread of dualism that I think is runs, I'm not sure how much you intended this, but it runs really heavily through the book. Uh, one of the most dualistic uh, aspects of all human cultures is religion. I mean, we either God is within us or we're part of God, we're part of God's creation. Uh, when we pray, we become part of God. I mean... The blood and eat, drink of my blood and eat of my flesh. Or I mean, there's a variety of spins on dualism, and uh, that's kind of central to the notion of most uh, religions. Yeah, the character. Many of the characters are wrestling with that, as we all do. You know about faith and whether anybody is keeping score or protecting us and how to be good and when things don't go well what does that say about God or what does that say about us um, there's a character one point who says who's very angry because her brother's been killed and she says you know God is uh, sleeping under a cactus right I mean that old image that old cliche image of the of the Mexican falling asleep. And she said, well, that's God. You know, <laughs> God's asleep. God's drunk and asleep and left us here. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I really love the character of, of uh, the lesbian aunt. Mm, the lesbian aunt, right. <laughs> so talk about creating that character and discovering, creating these in, they're interesting characters that we might seem, might seem, I mean, more comprehensible in America, but transposing them into the Mexican setting where they become very increasingly more exotic and odd. Mm-hmm. Well, some some characters just pop in. There they are, you know. I, I, um, everything with the looter uh, came easily, and I wrote it quickly and changed very little. Other sections of the book, I had to rewrite a lot. But Who did you have to re- re- rewrite? 
Well, the mo- interesting thing is that Anna, the character that's most like me, was the hardest to write. Really? Whereas the everything with the looter, I pretty much just wrote, and it's exactly as it came out. I was like in some groove. I don't know. Maybe it's easier to write about people who are less like yourself, but then I'm confused by that because I am a memoirist. <laughs> so I wrote a whole book about myself. I've never figured out why that is, but I had an easier time writing about being a drug lord than I did. <laughs> Anna. Anna has a complicated relationship with sex. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that seems like that must have been an interesting um, thing for you to write about. Did you? How did you approach that? Was that like part of her character, or did was did that derive from her character, or did that derive from the plot? Um. Or did I do research? Is that what you wanted? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask that. Okay. Um, it derived from her character, and she's mad, and she's um, acting out, and I think it comes from a certain self hatred, where. Um, that I think many people will be able to relate to, mm-hmm. where you feel you don't value yourself, and then you act out sexually. Well, that's an interesting perception. Um, uh, yeah, the guy's name is Carlos Slim. That's it. <laughs> Which I thought Carlos was re- Slim. Th- th- that was a really interesting. Uh, little bit you know one of the things that really makes this book is there's a variety of details that you just put in here um that we can kind of suss are true did you like have a true details per page uh no no <laughs> no quota? that's funny no not at all i think it's just a reporter in me right mm-hmm. yeah um i tried to make it a mix um of real things I, it was hard sometimes because the reporter and me wanted to check every little thing. And I was like, no, you're writing fiction. So then I tried to write fiction. But no, but you have to put in tr- real things. So I felt kind of like, you know, uh, being pulled from both ends sometimes. And I tried not to be so um, obsessive about facts, but still make it accurate and give context about about society and things that have really happened. So hopefully I, I achieved a pleasant balance of facts, history, and imagination well, it's hard to it's I commendably it's hard to tell where any of this where one leaves off and the other begins. Right. Now, uh this book has a really from the very get-go I, I mean you've reached by the time you reach the end of the first little segment, um you kind of want to like sit there and read through to the very end to find out what the heck's going to happen with all this um I think the story your sense of story is really strong. Uh how much of this how much of your sense of story and plotting was influenced by your work as a reporter where you have to like really really boil this stuff down and tell a big story in like essentially one paragraph of this book and how much of it was what this book told you to do um i think reporting taught me a lot about writing perhaps nowhere more than i worked once worked at a tabloid newspaper in Trenton, New Jersey, mm-hmm. where we had to write very short stories, and they had to be very peppy. And I think 
the experience of about 10 years of reporting teaches you that to not assume a readership, I'm assuming that at any moment you might have something better to do. Mm. Um, I tell my journalism students this just because they're used to turning in their paper and I'm paid to read it, so I read it. But in a newspaper, you are fighting against everybody else's stories. So I like to think that I've become good at trying to keep not be boring, right, to keep things rolling along, to be constantly aware, as Elmore Leonard said, to leave out the parts that people tend to skip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that quoting this Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> leave out the parts people tend to skip. Um, but most of these were very, very short chapters, mm-hmm. right, some of them. And then I had a massive outline where I was constantly shifting them around. Oh, interesting. So you did use an outline. I had a color-coded outline. Okay. Was this like Orange a... for Tiger, green for Anna. Yes. The structure was very difficult. That was the hardest part of it. Was it a big, like, poster on your wall? No, it was a file in my um, color-coded file. I tried postcards on the wall. At one point, I had, like, decorations on, on the thing. But, yes, constantly switching chapters around. It was very – I'm not good at chess, so part of me is like, why did I write a book like this? Because it was confusing at times to remember who knew what when, who knew what at certain points, and what their reactions would be depending on what each character knew. Well, I think it's uh, it, it, it's really fine now um, – Having written this piece of fiction, are you? Have you started your next novel yet? Just a little bit. Yes, Italy. Okay. <laughs> I love travel writing. I mean, well, I've written two books, and both of them are various forms of travel writing. So, I think I'm gonna. We spent a sabbatical in Italy, so that's what I'm thinking. Will you be uh, incorporating the elements of the fantastic that we found in this? I think so. Oh, yes. Good. <laughs> we'll make sure I hear about it. I've been speaking with Lily Wright. Her new novel is Dancing with the Tiger. Thank you for joining me, Lily. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.